You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy, with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Watt Watchers, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use, and SolarAy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello and thanks for joining our weekly podcast. This is Energy Insiders and my name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and as usual, I'm joined by David Leach, ITK analyst. David, how are you this fine day? I'm well, thanks, Giles. And hello to our special guest today. And wow, we're trying out some new technology. We are, we are. We're actually sort of recording on a different um, a different platform today, so um, hopefully it all goes well. But um, yes, to our guest, um, Tim Nelson, Chief Economist at AGL. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, guys. Look, um, big news this week. Um, you came out, um, I think it was last Saturday, actually, which is an interesting time for an announcement, but um, all the same, pretty much confirming what AGL had advised earlier in the year about your plans to replace Liddell. Now, what I found most interesting about this was that I can't think of a company more invested in coal technology than AGL in Australia, yet your assessment is that with an ageing plant, it's really not worth the effort to try and keep it going longer. Um, it's a better idea to have to replace it with, well, a portfolio of technologies, I guess you could say you've got some renewables, you've got some battery storage, maybe you've got some demand management, you've got some gas peakers. Um, That's going to end up with a cheaper, uh, cleaner, uh, probably smarter and more reliable system than we've got. Um, It's quite a change of thinking, isn't it? Yeah, look, I think it's it's one of those interesting ones where there there was lots, lots of debate about um, uh, the decision, I guess, to, to close Liddell in 2022. But I think, unfortunately, most of it was framed within a, a very simple notion of um, this was being done purely from a carbon risk perspective. And, and whilst carbon risk was a, a, a big driver and certainly I think the primary driver for the initial announcement as part of the greenhouse policy, the two other things which I think most people probably hadn't reflected on as much is just the, the very significant change in technology costs. Um, and the other thing is is the changing nature of electricity demand. We're seeing um, less energy being consumed, but similar or increasing amounts of capacity. And by definition, that tends to mean that we need um, lower capacity factor plants, so more flexible plant and that's the type of plant that I think you're seeing as the complementary plant to renewables in the, the announcement AGL's made. So we're talking then a bit of a shift from base load to more flexible dispatchable generation then? Yeah, I think it's it's funny, you know, with the, the concepts of base load, intermediate and peaking, I always tr- try and remind people that when I think of it purely as an economist, they're, they're demand concepts, they're not supply concepts. So when I think of base load, it's base load demand. It's the demand that's always there. Intermediate demand, it's the demand that's there for a good proportion of the time, but not all the time. And then peaking is is that demand that's only there for those short periods of time, largely due to um, heating and cooling um, uh, operations within our within our homes and businesses. So, but on the supply side, really, the technology that you would use to meet any of those particular duties, it used to be quite simple, which was um, to meet baseload demand, you'd want um, relatively higher um, fixed cost assets that had relatively low uh, running costs, and that was coal. Um, uh, intermediate, you'd be looking at combined cycle gas because it has uh, slightly lower uh, capital costs, slightly higher operating costs. And then for those peaking days, you basically want that quick start, very low capital cost, relatively high 
um, operating costs. And that was the, the best way of making sure that you had an optimal um, system design. But with the introduction of, of renewables uh, and the changing nature of demand where we're seeing less energy under the curve, that low duration curve, but um, the same or increasing peaks, it, it changes the nature of the supply mix that's coming into the market. So in my mind, the, the concepts of baseload intermediate peaking, they're, they're, they're really still important concepts on the demand side. But in terms of the supply mix that you would want to meet them, um, it's really going to keep coming back to um, the change in technology costs and the unique nature of some of these technologies, whether they be OCGT, reciprocating engines, pumped hydro, the list goes on. There's there's so many interesting developments going on in the space that um, the old ways of thinking about that standard way of meeting um, the demand curve with you know kind of those three technologies, it's 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 not really the way that people think about it these days. Tim, I, I looked at the investment plans, and I have to say I think they're fairly vague. Um, you know, to be in the sense that there's not a lot of committed stuff and not enough to replace Liddell and. To be frank, I, I, I hardly see how a wind farm in, in Queensland is going to be of much use to someone in New South Wales a lot of the time. I, I mean, if, if someone like, I don't know, Matt Howell from Tomago came along to you and said, um, you know, how am I going to get my electricity post uh, 2028 or whenever your current contract runs out, how would that conversation go? Well, look, I think for any customer that's using electricity today, the most important um, thing in my mind is that you want to see more supply coming in full stop because more supply generally equals um, downward pressure on, on prices. Um, so one of the interesting observations that, that I tend to make is the very significant amount of renewables that are under construction or are very close to being under construction because they've reached financial close. Yeah, we're talking you know a couple of gigawatts of capacity there, um, and you're starting to see um, forward curves certainly kind of um, uh, moderate a little bit um, from where they, they they may have been previously, and so you've got that that underlying energy cost, which I think is is of critical um, interest and importance for our customers. But I think the other one, which probably is of probably has driven more of the public narrative, is around this reliability angle. And that's where I think that people make the mis they, they misunderstand that renewables are reliable. It's just that they're variable. And so you get into the the discussion of well, if they're variable, what's the complementary technology to ensure that um, that you can still have you know reliable electricity supply? And that's where you're looking at that lower capacity factor plant. So I, I absolutely kind of hear that people would be somewhat. Um, perplexed at, 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 at kind of the way in which um, we're, we're, we're gradually as an industry shifting from one technology type to another. But I think once people get across those types of details, they're pretty comfortable that it's, it's the right way to go. Yeah, so I, I've been looking carefully at California and its duck curve and, you know, uh, and how the gas generation and imports uh, come in to replace the solar as that wears off. But you, you mentioned electricity price and AGL had some numbers uh, for the new generation in there roughly. I mean, some of the stuff's at 80 and, and, and $70 a, a megawatt hour and even... But, I mean, we, if we talk about the um, the NEG, and I do want to call it the NEG, <laughs> I mean, the modelling that Frontiers Economics has done for that and which the um, Energy Security Board's adopted and passed up to COAG, 
has, uh, you know, uh, prices coming down to $40. Uh, uh, I shouldn't ask the question as bluntly as this, but what do you, what, what do you think of those numbers? Um, oh, look, I think that part of the the, the, the the challenge when you're looking at all of the different modelling is to unpick, well, what are the difference in assumptions? And I know that, you know, some of the, the modelling that's been previously done, and I take our carbon constrained future report, one of the the principal questions that we used to get about it is that it's largely all renewables that are coming in. What about gas? And we'd say, well, you know, from um, the perspective of the, the the way in which these models tend to work, gas will only be a cost competitive option at higher operating duties if you've got a relatively low gas price. And so I think when it comes to things like the, the modelling that was done for the Energy Security Board or the modelling that was done under the Finkel Review or the modelling that you know, entities like AGL have done both for the 90-day plan but also some of the historical stuff we've done like our Carbon Constrained Future Report, it all comes down to the difference in assumptions. The, the other, I guess, question, though, that I think um, is still unresolved, and I, I know the Energy Security Board's working um, quite hard on it, is what's the exact form of the national energy guarantee? What's it going to look like? How is it going to work in practice? Because I think some of those questions will obviously change the way in which you would think about modelling it. Um, different technologies would have higher or lower value streams, so to speak, based upon the design of it. So it's probably a little early days yet in my mind to be you know, you know, really confidently contrasting those models. Yeah, so I'm going to hand back to Giles in a second, but I'll just comment that I don't see electricity prices coming back to $40 a megawatt hour. Uh, myself anytime uh, over the next 10 years and therefore the outlook for consumers is basically to factor in uh, higher electricity prices than we've historically had. But I just want to, before I turn back to Charles, to ask you one more question about specific forms of gas technology. And I know that your Barker's Inlet plant is going to be reciprocating engines. I wondered if you could talk in terms of both the uh, LCOE of that technology uh, and, and it's, uh, I guess, carbon emissions or fuel efficiency um, uh, a little bit. And, and uh, I know, it, of course, it has very fast start, but if you could just touch on some of the other uh, parameters, how they might compare with, say, combined cycle gases uh, or even pumped hydro as alternative technologies. Yeah, it's certainly um, uh, less efficient than, say, an OCGT, but um, it's um, much quicker to, to, to ramp up. And I think... Where I see uh, the the market heading is you're probably going to get a mix of um, technologies coming in. So you may get some reciprocating engines uh, to provide that relatively quick start, but then reciprocating engines will also be competing longer term with battery technology. And whilst battery technology probably can't compete with them today, um, in the future that might may change. The other observation I make about South Australia is that it is a unique part of, of the world, really, in the sense of being able to deploy storage to store excess renewables at various points in the day and to deploy them back later. Where storage, I think, starts to really you know, come in, um, into the market, in my mind, is once a particular region or a particular market has uh, basically more renewable output than minimum demand, then there are going to be times where you're going to see this ability to store it and push it back in. But just I'll back on to your, your um, comment around price. I think the other thing to remember is that um, by, by definition, if, if over the course of a business cycle, 
um, a proprietor of a wind farm or a solar plant or a, or a gas-fired peaker or whatever the technology is, if they're not recovering both their operating costs and their fixed costs, then they're not going to invest in anything new. And I think that's one of the observations that you know I was certainly making several years ago that we're in a commodity market and these commodity markets tend to go down and then they tend to go up and then they tend to go down again. And I think what's really important is that we don't lose sight of the fact that over the business cycle, you want to see an efficient market recover those those long-run um, average costs. But at various points in the market, prices might actually reflect the short-run marginal cost of the, the marginal technology. And so I think the other element of all of this with more variable renewables coming in, because they tend to have a coincident nature of production, you're probably going to get into a situation where you've got more volatility in the market. So... And I think that's part of what the NEG was trying to 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 address, which is um, to to manage all of this really really efficiently as we decarbonise. We probably want to ensure that all the market participants have got the right incentives to ensure they're contracting, so that the end customer is receiving that that stable long term um, arrangement that you were alluding to before. Just on the neg, then, uh, Tim, um, it's. Um um, one of the issues, or one of the big concerns, I mean, apart from the fact that you know you probably need more ambitious um, emissions reduction targets to get things through and, and, and get clarity for investment, one of the big issues is the contracting and its ability, or its, the likelihood is that it could, it could reinforce the um, the market dominance of the current incumbents, of, of which AGL is one of them. Um, to you, how much of that is an issue? Um, it's probably something that you won't object to, but I guess if it's going to get um, approval from the state governments, then that issue needs to be addressed. How can that be addressed in a contracting market? Oh, I think it's one of the the the, the key um, elements of the energy, which if done properly, could actually see some really innovative new business models emerge. So, um, if you if you went, you know, kind of back in time, um, building a new coal-fired power station or a new very large gas-fired power station, you needed, you know, billions of dollars. Um, and so, you know, getting together that kind of um, finance um, is a pretty big deal. When you're building small modular wind farms or a solar plant, um, you're talking about much lower upfront capital costs. The ability to partner with firming either generation or storage, I think becomes a really, um, it's a much more achievable prospect. So I tend to see this as something which um, uh, could actually result in these new innovative business models where instead of it being, I'm a wind farm uh, operator or I'm a gas peaking developer or I'm um, a retailer, you might actually find um, you're getting uh, uh, participants um, who may say operate a wind portfolio today, all of a sudden have got a contract market whereby they can firm up and provide that to a retailer. Um, so I tend to see it all comes down to the devil is in the detail. And if it's done well, and it provides those right incentives for partnering up so that you've got the complementary technologies working together, I think it's likely to see... Um, um, some very exciting new business models coming into the market. Okay, well, that's good. Well, let's, um, let, let's let's wait to see that detail then. Um, just just two quick questions before I hand back to David. One is just on the LCOE thing. Um, when you talked about the various options that you had, and I think there was about four different options, and two of them were more or less committed, and you gave technology prices, but it didn't single out wind and solar separately because they were sort of parcelled in with some gas peaking plant and and some element of demand management. What is your sense of the cost of wind and the cost of solar at the moment? 
Oh, look, it's, you know, it almost changes on a day-to-day basis with some of the technology improvements. It's, um, it's a... Uh, Just as a guy for the people offering to contract PPAs with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, if, if, if I kind of go to kind of some recent transactions, you'd have to kind of think that wind is somewhere, depending on the wind speed, you'd be looking somewhere in the order of 60, 65, 70, depending on the wind speed. And solar... You know, it's the much more difficult one um, for me to get my head around just because the numbers do tend to get thrown around quite a lot. But, you know, the, the most recent research that kind of I've seen come across my desk talks about it something in the order of, you know, 75 through to kind of 85, 90, just depending upon where it is and what the solar area is. I was hoping it wasn't going to be the research, but the actual contract that you sound, signed with Mao Ning, for instance, for the 300 megawatts, <laughs> but that's probably too much to ask. But um, I think we're down at 70 as far as those solar PPAs go at the, at the moment, and it all depends. You know, There's a lot of offshore investment in the space, and it depends on the cost of capital that people will accept. And if you're looking at you know like zero interest rates in Germany, then you know a 4% IRR, equity IRR, might even be acceptable, but yeah, sorry, yeah. No, that's right. Yeah, look, one question before I hand back to David, um, Tim. Um, Snowy Hydro, um, we're recording this on a Friday. It will be um, up on the website on, on Monday, so we may have missed a weekend announcement. But we are expecting a um, the um, the um, the assessment of um, Snowy Hydro um, to be released, hopefully before Christmas, might be on Christmas Eve. What do you think that's going to have an impact on, one, your own decisions for Liddell and some of the other things that um, people want to do in terms of wind and solar? Oh, look, I think at this stage, it's probably a bit early to, to say. That said, I think that as we move into a, a market where the, the speed of um, substitution um, of uh, old technologies for new technologies may increase, and, and that may be a result of um, Australia's ambition um, under uh, COP21 um, increasing. Um, but if we were to see more of those variable renewables because of that coincident nature of production, then then the nature of whether it's pumped hydro or chemical storage or even, you know, some of the technologies which we hear people are talking about that may not be on the ground in any meaningful way today, such as, such as hydrogen from renewables, I think they're going to have a strong role to play. I think the main thing that I would say is that um, we would want... Uh, to ensure that we're getting the right outcome for the market and for customers. We, we just want to make sure that everyone's banking these projects on the same types of terms. Um, and I think that's where David's point before around, you know, we're in a very low cost of capital environment at the moment with, you know, relatively low um, borrowing rates. We just want to make sure though that everyone's playing on that same um, playing field if they are going to invest in something on commercial terms. But Look, I think is that a subtle is that, is that a subtle subtle reference to government investment in a very major power station? Oh, well, 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 let's look at that. that. <laughs> let's let's let, let's look at that, Giles, because you know um, when when the federal government buys Snowy, it's all of a sudden going to own eighteen percent of the households in Victoria, for instance. It's going to it's not just uh, the generation side; it's going to be a gas generator as well as well as a hydro generator. Uh, and it, but it's also going to be the fourth biggest retailer in the country by customer numbers. So I, I always that's great if you want more competition in a sense. But it also 
gets to this terrible situation where, you know, the umpire is essentially a supporter of one of the teams. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and, I, and I know what the other teams are really going to think about that. It just doesn't, it's not a good look. And on top of that, Snowy, you know, is a massive uh, dollar investment. It requires a lot of coordinated transmission investment as well, which is another topic I want to cover. And I'm guessing the big uh, gen tailors, who always naturally want to look after their own interests, um, a bit worried about that, Tim. What, what do you think? Oh, look, I think that, you know, whether it's kind of an AGL or whether it's, you know, a, a power shop or whether it's any participant in the market, I think everyone just wants to see um, those those level playing field um, conditions play out. So as long as things are banked on the same commercial terms that um, uh, an entity like, um, you know, any other kind of privately owned entity in the market is kind of looking at, I think people could get their head around that. That said, I think that, um, you know, it's one of those questions that really, you know, it's it's really a question more for civil society than it is for any of us around here, which is um, should governments be utilising their resources to do this or should there be in, uh, in the right incentives for the private sector to be forthcoming to to build that infrastructure and operate those retail businesses? And I guess that's more of a... That's a broader question for a, um, I guess, a, a broader question than for the, the, the energy economist at AGL. So I look at Queensland and you can just see what influence the Queensland government's had on the electricity market up there. And it's fine when they own the generators. But if you were a private sector generator there, you might feel a bit grumpy about it. But let's, as you say, move on from that. I just wanted to ask about quickly about one other thing, which is the... Uh, the prospects for new transmission investment and opening up renewable energy centres. And I mean, you're the biggest generator in New South Wales, cumulatively, I think, ahead of, ahead of Origin. And, and Origin is, an, as uh, New South Wales is an energy importer and actually falling behind on renewable energy. Do you see that uh, the state itself should be supporting some more of this transmission and, uh, and getting a bit more of its own uh, investment to become more self-sufficient? It's a really good question. I think that's where the Finkel Review, in my mind, walked that really, I think it did a great job walking that fine line between um, seeing a little bit more forward planning in the sense of transmission, um, but also not saying, well, um, we want to go back to a, a central planning approach. We want to make sure that we've got these regions identified and coming up with the right, right ways of expanding transmission to connect these renewable energy centres. I think... One of the things that's probably missing from that is is some good quality modelling on what that would cost, what it would look like. And it's certainly something that I know I've raised in discussions I've had with other uh, like-minded um, renewable energy type players around the need for, say, maybe a, an arena co-funded um, exercise of looking at, at, at some of these, these opportunities for building transmission and what that might mean and, and how it could be done what the costs would look like, who would bear those costs, who would wear the risks of it, all those types of things. But to your point, transmission's got to be a key part of the the evolution of the market over the next um, couple of decades. And I think now's the time to do all of that work because if we want to make sure that we get the best outcome on behalf of all of the people who are using the product, then we, we really do need to do that now before spending an awful lot of money on um on you know, new technology types that may actually not be in the exact right spot. 
Tim, I'd just like to maybe wrap up with um, one question. Um, last time I bumped into you was over in Paris, and you were um, there with um, Andy Vasey, the um, the CEO of AGL. And I remember I wrote a story which um, Andy didn't like very much. I asked him what he thought the business model of the future was going to be, and he said he wasn't too sure or he didn't know. And um, I wrote that, and he probably thought that um, – um, uh, it, it made him look like he didn't know what he was doing. But I, I guess the point of the article was that no one really knows what the business model f- of the future is for utilities because it's not clear um, with all the changing technologies. I'm just wondering whether over the last couple of years, has that come any clearer? Look, I think certainly um, AGL's done a couple of really interesting things that are heading in the direction of where certainly on a personal level, I, I tend to think that the world might be headed. So, you know, if you look at, say, the virtual power plant or some of the things that we're thinking about around, you know, peer-to-peer and this type of stuff, I, I go back to one fundamental kind of basic, which is what does the customer want? The customer wants to switch on their 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 light, know that it comes on, but also know that it's coming on in a way that's um, over time reducing that environmental impact. Um, and they also want it, um, done at the cheapest possible price. So that's in my mind where the business model starts to become if a customer has the ability to take more of their own energy production responsibility through distributed generation, through managing their use more efficiently, including load shifting through um, chemical storage behind the meter, so battery storage, I think that's going to be a key um, key part of it. And I think particularly in Australia, Australia is you know, the most logical place in many ways for behind the meter battery storage to take off because you've got, you know, quite a significant proportion of households now with solar PV on the roof. So it makes a lot of sense given many of those households aren't home during the day for them to store that power and then, you know, pull it back in. But later how are you the guys going to make money? Look, I think that's where you've got to keep coming back to the fundamental driver of you've got to do what the customer wants. And then after you've worked out what the customer wants and how you're going to deliver deliver it to them in the most efficient way, um, the, the 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 profit will be what the profit will be. That said, one of the biggest challenges I think, and it goes to the heart of your um, your questioner, and you know, the future is quite hard to predict here, is that you're dealing with an industry that's moving from having some very heavy fixed cost infrastructure that supplied the vast majority of this power to a, a very different world where you're going to have much smaller, um, more diverse types of, uh, certainly on the supply side, supply side kit, but you're also seeing these new technologies on the demand side, which tend to mean that um, you're seeing kind of these, these you know, flatter loads. That said, the introduction of um, variable renewables means that you've got volatility because of the, the nature of the production. So you throw all of those variables into the mix and it becomes a far... Um, a far harder thing to predict. That said, the, the thing that, um, you know, um, you know, Andy's done a lot of things that have impressed me, but probably the thing that's impressed me the most is his um, use of scenario planning. I think um, the, the the nature of thinking through well, what could the world look like? Well, let's, let's undertake a, a whole bunch of scenario analysis and then be prepared to pivot. So if we see things changing in a way that um, we weren't anticipating, as the primary scenario, but we did anticipate it in another scenario, what were the key things that we we thought we should do at that point um, and pivot away? So I think, or, or pivot to, um, so to speak. So I think mm-hmm. 
in my mind, the future is inherently uncertain. But but that said, um, you know, I think we're as as well placed as anyone to, to to do well in it. It's just a case of keeping that that kind of eye on kind of some of these emerging trends. So I I, uh, I agree that Andy Vessi's done a lot of impressive things, and the one for me that's most impressed me is he announced his strategy about getting out of coal-fired generation pretty early in his tenure. And he stuck to it. Uh, and, you know, the winning general always is the one that uh, sticks to their strategy the longest, which is winning, of course. Um, uh, so I, I, I admire companies that show some discipline and stick to a plan over time. And I won't say any more. Giles, I just wanted to come back to you. We normally put the other stuff going on at the beginning, but we, Tim, what Tim had to say was so interesting, we jumped straight in there. But I noticed you had a story that... <laughs> You're being very kind there, David. <laughs> you, you had a story, Giles, today about uh, all these generators running right around like they were a member of um, uh, Ken Kesey's bag back in the 1960s, all tripping out uh, left, right and centre. I mean, that's a, that's a worry as far as this summer goes, uh, certainly, I think, for Audrey Zimmelman. But, I mean, if again, if we look at the modelling under the NEG, it's a big problem because after Liddell, no more of these coal-fired generators are expected to close until 2030. And I just don't think that's a good enough solution myself because they're all getting old and we're going to see more hot summers and more and more difficulty in keeping them all going. So as far as I'm concerned, the physical risk in the system is actually going up unless we get a lot more generation and a lot more resiliency built in fairly soon. Well, that's exactly the reason I think why AGL made the decision to close Liddell. And um, it's interesting that one of their units is going to be out till mid-February because of um, turbine blade issues. We had, as my story um, uh, wrote, um, we had a unit from Roy Ang A tripping out um, on Tuesday morning. We had a uh, Thursday morning, sorry, we had a Milmerin unit tripping out and we've got a P Mount Piper unit offered two weeks um so um all pretty interesting look the um the coming week um oh, i've got to say i'd be fascinated to know tim about what some of that scenario planning was and exactly how far you um, andy's been pushing those scenarios but i'm not too sure you're probably willing to tell us that right now but um next week david we do actually have a few things coming up it is pre-christmas we are still waiting for the snowy hydro feasibility study we are um, waiting for, I think there's a Central Services Commission talking about solar feed and tariffs, and I think the AMC got a rather important thing on on reliability um, planning, I think. Is that right? Well, you know, if, if if all we can do in the week before Christmas is wait around for the Essential Services Commission to talk about solar feed in uh, tariffs, I might start. <laughs> I, might, I might start Christmas early, Giles. You can you can sit around waiting for that. <laughs> no, look, it's all part of the service of renew economy. Look, um, hey Tim, look, I'd just like to thank you very much for joining us. Look, it was a fantastic conversation. Once again, we'd love to talk longer. We'd love to find out more about that scenario planning, perhaps next time. That sounds sounds great. And look, thanks for having me. Um, you can find more details on that scenario planning in a previous investor pack but um, I'll make sure that I get that link to everyone and um, yeah again really appreciate you guys having me on and for all the listeners out there I hope they have a great Christmas New Year. Good stuff okay. So Giles what I'm waiting for myself it's going to take six months and I'm not going to sit around waiting for it but I am anxiously looking forward to AEMO's plan that they're going to develop by June next year including the transmission plan to me that's the foundation document about around which all of this stuff is going to should be based if they do a good job on it. Well, don't go to Christmas just yet because I understand that a discussion paper on that very plan is being released very soon, possibly in the next couple of hours, certainly in the next couple of days and before Christmas. So that's something that you can digest with your Christmas stocking and your Christmas hamper. Um, listeners, thank you very much for tuning in once again. Thanks to our, our sponsors, Solaray Energy and Watchers. And um, 
Thank you very much. Please tell others about this webcast. Please give us your feedback. Please leave a review on iTunes. And I think we're going to talk to you one more time before we go on holidays. And um, thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Watt Watchers, makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs. Accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit wattwatches.com.au and take control of your energy use. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by SolarRay Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. They're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today.